It's not often that a lawyer has skills that can be used in an emergency situation. I don't know how to stop bleeding. I can't stitch someone up, but there was something I could do for an issue I really cared about. All right, Beth, just attention to the end We've had more business in the area, working on the track. Welcome to Deeper Dish. Welcome back to Deeper Dish. Today, we have Emily on the show. Emily stops by to talk about her lawsuit in opposition to our current administration's travel ban. I hope you all really enjoy this show. Thanks. Emily, thank you for joining me on Deeper Dish. Before we get started into the travel ban, could you tell me your connection to Chicago? How'd you get here? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I actually moved here for law school, sort of how I got to working on the travel ban in the first place. I had been living in Washington, D.C., working for the Federal Trade Commission, got into Northwestern, was dating my then boyfriend, now husband. We met in D.C., Ah. Uh, Picked up and moved here. And then after law school, I ended up with a federal clerkship with a district court judge here in the city and then went into private practice after that. So how does that work? So you go to law school. Did you get to pick Chicago? Did you all decide, hey, I want to stay in Chicago? Or was it, hey, I got to pick for a clerkship. We got to go to X city or. So you can do it either way. DJ and I had just moved in together a year earlier, and that was important to me. And I thought, all right, there are plenty of judges in Chicago. And if I apply to go clerk somewhere else, either I ask him to pick up and move again to a random city for what's only going to be a one or two year stint, or I ask him to stay here and, you know, move to his own apartment and we try and make it work long distance for a while. Or, look, Chicago's a phenomenal place to clerk. The bench here is full of incredibly talented, incredibly smart judges. We have an appellate court, we have a district court, which is the trial court level. And I thought, all right, I'm just going to roll the dice here. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I had an offer with a law firm. I said, I can go work there for a year, reapply, see what happens. And it happened to work out. And I ended up clerking for two years for a really fantastic judge. His name is Robert Gettleman, still on the bench one of my very favorite humans. What does it mean to be a clerk? So to be a clerk is to be the judge's right hand. You read all the briefs that come in. You draft the first version of the judicial opinion that goes out deciding a motion, deciding a case. You help prepare jury instructions. Most of the work is research, writing, talking through cases with the judge and my other clerk. There were two of us. Because the cases are never clear cut. There's always some sort of thorny issue to work through. So we had working lunches every day and we'd talk through some of the tougher issues in the case. He did most of his own criminal work, but I found it fascinating. And so I asked to be involved. And so I would review the pre-sentencing reports that we would get in from probation and the U.S. Attorney's Office. We'd read the memos we'd get in from the defense attorneys. Sometimes it was the Federal Defenders Program using the federal sentencing guidelines, figure out what the range is, figure out if there were mitigating circumstances that meant you should give a lesser sentence. Sometimes there's a mandatory minimum, so you couldn't. We actually spent a week in Laredo, Texas. The judges down there, it's a you know, it's a border town. They are so overwhelmed with 
immigration-related crimes that they depend on visiting judges to come down and help out with sentencings. So in four and a half days, my judge sentenced 120 people. Four and a half days, so that's 30 people a day in an eight to 10 hour shift? We spent a good month reviewing in as much detail as possible each and every file. Letters from family members, letters in support. And sometimes there were other factors that would come in. You'd read their criminal history. And so, I mean, we spent hours on each one, but then you get down there and each one got 15 minutes, you hope, to make their case. And sometimes it was just sort of a rubber stamp, only in the sense that sometimes there is a mandatory minimum and there's just nothing you can do. But it was heart-wrenching because some of these people are folks from Mexico who were just trying to feed their family. And someone tells you that you can do a job on one side of the river for $5, or you can sneak over in a truck and do the same job on the other side of the river for $50, and you have a family to support, what do you- It's an easy decision. It's, it's an easy decision. It's still a crime. They know it's a crime. We know it's a crime. You know, we saw yeah. people who had been in the U.S. since they were kids and were going to be deported, sort of like what's happening with DACA right now. I mean, there were people who came over who committed a crime and were going to be deported to a country that they didn't really know that technically they were from. Maybe they had family they were still in contact with. Maybe not. Maybe they spoke the language. Maybe they didn't. That was probably one of the hardest things I've done. Whatever we may think about any criminal. Everyone is entitled to zealous representation. And I think sometimes the zealous gets removed because it is kind of like a factory. It's like, we only have a certain amount of time to do this. And if we don't get through these, we create this huge backlog. But when someone tells me that our system doesn't have judges, the system is failing. Our situation was just actual federal crimes. He's a federal judge, not an immigration judge. And we can, it's probably a whole other episode. The fact that immigration judges, and I'm making air quotes, aren't actual judges. They are, in fact, employees of the Department of Homeland Security. They put on robes, but they're not actual judges. So there's a weird bias already. But the backlog is ridiculous. My best example of that, when I was a much younger lawyer, I was representing a mom and her three children from Guatemala in their political asylum application. And the process is a long one. And if you don't get granted asylum at the first stage for various reasons. You didn't file your application within this one-year period. You end up having a trial, effectively. And we were all prepared for trial. We had had the state scheduled for months. Opening statement, closing argument. We're putting witnesses on the stand. We have an expert ready to testify by phone about abuse of women and children in Guatemala. I mean, weeks of work have gone into this. The judge ran late that day. Our case was supposed to go on at one. And he said, I'm really sorry. I can't hear your case today. My next available date is two years from now, which is both good and bad for the family. For the family, it means they are now entitled to be here legally for the next two years, but still sort of in limbo. The heartbreaking part of that story, a few months later, the immigration lawyer calls me and said, we've been reviewing their case. These three children are eligible for deferred action under DACA. Are they interested? And I said, Obviously, I have to sit down and explain the pros and cons to them, but their mom isn't. Would you be willing to exercise prosecutorial discretion and say she can stay too? And the attorney said, sure. If they're interested, this is a package deal. And so we sat down and we talked about the pros and the cons. Look, we can continue with your political asylum application. 
your claims are good. And by good, I mean horrific. You will likely get asylum, but I can't guarantee that. And it's two years of uncertainty for you. What we have now is an offer of certainty that there's no path to citizenship here, but it guarantees that you are here legally. It makes you eligible for college admissions and some college scholarship money in ways that you weren't eligible for before. And they said, we just want to stay. And I said, you need to know that whoever follows Obama may not keep this program in place. There's no guarantee. We hope that this is something that no one would ever roll back, but who knows? And they said, no, we want to take it. So they took it. That was quite a few years ago, and I'm no longer with that firm, so they're no longer my clients. And so I hope that everything is okay with them. Because of a two-year backlog in the immigration court system, they ended up as dreamers, and who knows what their future is. The other option you presented, the same thing could be said. The new administration set new rules. I mean, who knows how they're going to even evaluate political asylum applications now. The refugee program is all such a mess. You worked a little bit with the immigration. Is that what led you to do this travel ban? So I got to my firm after my clerkship, and one of the pro bono options they had was representing families in their political asylum applications. And the pitch was, on an altruistic level, you are doing a family a tremendous service, or sometimes an individual. You're doing them a tremendous service. And on a selfish level, you're going to get court time as a really junior lawyer. You're going to get your own trial. And both of those things were really interesting to me. Okay, great. I'm going to get to do opening statements. I'm going to get to put on witnesses. I'm going to get to meet with these people, help them, talk them through their problems, figure out how best to put together their narrative so that it's compelling, so that I can convince someone that these people deserve to stay here. And we work with an organization called the National Immigrant Justice Center. They're part of Heartland Alliance here in Chicago. They do unbelievable work. They vet the cases. So we know that these are people who are with legitimate claims. And so I started doing that work and I learned so quickly how unbelievably confusing the immigration system is. It was confusing to me as someone with a law degree, with English as a native language, and with (laughs) basically the unlimited resources of a big law firm. When you start the administrative process of an asylum application, you fill out one attorney form on, and it's either blue or green paper. And then if you end up going to the sort of quote unquote trial portion of things, you have to file another attorney appearance form on the other color paper. And if you screw that up, they can bounce the whole case. Do you get an opportunity to restart? No. The fact that there are people who are trying to navigate this system alone is horrifying. And most people are. Most people come and don't know what they're supposed to do. And so this became a pretty personal issue to me. I had another family from Zimbabwe. Friends told them they should apply for the diversity visa lottery. And so they did. And they won. And they thought, this is great. We have visas. And they basically came here, raised their hands and said, hey, we're here illegally and we're trying not to be. They were trying to do the right thing. Well, they won the visa lottery. They went in to do their paperwork. Immigration realized that they weren't actually eligible for the visa lottery, despite the fact that they had been granted visas through the lottery, and then put them in deportation proceedings, which is when we came in and they are now here they were granted asylum. They're now here legally. And I actually can understand both sides of it, right? Like, you want to have some kind of border control, 
But like you can't do that to a family because you messed up or you granted them something. You just can't now say, oh, actually, when this whole process and you actually are not eligible. So I'm also going to put you into the deportation. Pro- it, it, it's just- and, and again, this was a family that they had Social Security numbers at this point. Yeah. They were both employed. They were paying taxes. They weren't trying to fly under the radar. They weren't trying to milk the system. They were trying to do the right thing. And the idea that the response of the government, even under the Obama administration, was we're going to try and send you back to Zimbabwe where we know you will be killed is unacceptable. During Trump's campaign, his immigration policies, I was just terrified by and I, you know, I was worried about people. Even if you take them as not official statements during his campaign, even if you take them as campaign rhetoric, campaign promises, it still shows animus. It still shows bias. It still shows what your intention is and was. On our side, once we got into the litigation of all of this travel ban stuff, it ended up helping that he continued to tweet once he was in office. Then there's really no debate that those are now statements of the president. You've now sort of waived your argument that these were just phony campaign claims. These are now things he's saying as the president in his official capacity. We are going to keep our country safe. We are going to... uh do whatever is necessary to keep our country safe. Uh, We had a decision which we think we'll be very successful with. It shouldn't have taken this much time uh, because uh, safety is a primary reason. One of the reasons I'm standing here today is the security of our country. The voters felt that I would give it the best security. So we'll be doing something very rapidly uh, having to do with additional security for our country. You'll be seeing that sometime next week. In addition, we will continue to go through the court process, and ultimately, I have no doubt that we'll win that particular case. I feel totally confident that we will have tremendous security for the people of the United States. We will be extreme vetting, which is a term that I developed early in my campaign because I saw what was happening. And while I've been president, which is just for a very short period of time, I've learned Tremendous things that you could only learn, frankly, if you were in a certain position, namely president. And in some ways, Twitter is more powerful than statements made in a press conference because anyone can make a gaffe. Anyone can say something inarticulate. Anyone can say something they didn't mean or think through all the way and then need to correct it because they're fielding questions from reporters. They got a question they weren't anticipating. They answered it the wrong way. If you are affirmatively putting a message out there into the world via Twitter or your own press statement or whatever it is, you had time to think about the words you wanted to use. Whether he actually takes the time or whether he just flies off the handle and types the first thing that comes into his head, that's anybody's guess. But someone should be reviewing those. This isn't just you, Donald Trump, TV star. This isn't just you, Donald Trump, business guy. This is you, President of the United States. You are now making those statements in an official capacity, and you have to think about what those words mean, what the consequences of those words are. If you tweet, we should go back to the first travel ban, the second one is just a watered-down version, yeah, somebody's going to use that in court against you because you made a public statement about the policies of your administration. The way it all came down was just... So very messy. I mean, it was a week after his inauguration, and there had been rumblings that this was going to happen. And somehow 
there was an email going around of Chicago lawyers who knew that this was likely. And there was an email that went out that said, if you are interested in coming to O'Hare, if and when this actually happens, please email us back. We will put together an email list. And if and when this happens, you will get a blast. And I will never forget, I was at the hair salon getting my hair cut and I looked at my phone and I said, okay, I guess, I mean, I have to go to the airport. That was it. I mean, there was not a question in my mind. It's not often that a lawyer has skills that can be used in an emergency situation. I don't know how to stop bleeding. I can't stitch someone up, but there was something I could do for an issue I really cared about. O'Hare is the second largest, second busiest airport in the country and maybe even the world. We have a lot of people that are landing international flights from outside of the United States that are coming from outside the United States that were affected by this travel ban that was tried to be executed by our administration. Some people reached out to you and you all said, we need lawyers to help these people get past the travel ban craziness. They were being held almost like a makeshift prison. Initially, when we first all showed up, the executive order came out and it was a ban on entry into the country by people from seven majority Muslim countries. And it went into effect immediately. It did not include any provision for people who are already in the air, people who are about to get on a flight, people who are in fact legal permanent residents of the United States. No exceptions for anyone for any reason. There was also no instruction given to customs agents, to border control. No one knew how to implement this. No one knew what it meant, what it was supposed to do. So what it turned into pretty quickly was, okay, so we are now going to vet basically everyone who might be on a flight from one of these countries and, frankly, anyone who looks like he or she might be Muslim. That's what happened. Is it fair to compare it to, like, temporary internment camp? It was never that extreme, at least at O'Hare. I I can't speak for others. Although there were people who ended up being taken into custody for a period of days. For most of these people, it ended up being either being held for multiple hours, if not days, or being sent back on a flight to the country they came from, which was a pretty frequent occurrence. It's also kind of daunting to have all this stuff situated and to land somewhere and say, You're not welcome here right now. For no reason. What was the most horrifying part? The president has fairly wide-reaching immigration authority when it comes to changing policy. Here, hopefully someday she gets to say, look, there is a threat from X country. We're going to stop things. Here's why. There has to be a legitimate reason. It has to be explained in writing, in public. And obviously it wasn't. This came following... All of these horrific tweets, public statements from Trump, from members of his administration, from White House staff. I mean, this was clearly a you're Muslim, you're not welcome in our country policy. We all got there and it was chaos because bless everyone, 200 plus people showed up that day. I was there too. All in total, it was more than 300 lawyers who filled in shifts at some point. But that first night, I mean, it was hundreds of people. Some people busted out laptops and started drafting complaints to be filed in federal court, some of which 
were that day or the following day. Some of that was putting people in touch with immigration attorneys. Some of that was just helping family members get information on the people who were on the flight, whether they were still being held, whether they had been sent back, whether they were going to be let through, trying to get information to the people who were being held because they were seizing cell phones, they were wiping information from cell phones. So people were not only being held, but they were not allowed to contact their family members to say, A, I'm safe, or B, I'm not. It felt more like... It seems like a bad analogy because we were at the airport, but it was sort of like air traffic control at first rather than actual legal work. But so very quickly, a couple folks, and I can't claim to be one of them, took the lead in taking this ad hoc group of lawyers and organizing them. Fairly quickly. Within a couple days, we had a section of the international terminal sort of cordoned off and we had tables set up and we had attorneys staffing O'Hare 24 hours a day. And we had interpreters of every language we could think of that would be useful. We had signs in every language. We had law firms that donated laptops and Wi-Fi hotspots. People brought meals. You came just to get people food and run errands and help us keep the area clean. I mean, people wanted to come and help. Part of our job became monitoring flights, seeing when flights from these countries were coming in. And in fact, other countries, Kuwait was often being targeted. Mm -hmm. Countries that weren't on the list were being targeted because a lot of people from the Middle East don't take direct flights. You know, maybe you have someone coming from Iraq, but they took a connection. And so there ended up being a secure database where family members could put in the information of the passenger. And so we could track the flight, make sure things were going okay. How did you build up trust with family members who are upset with us, United States, in the system? Please put your information in because we're trying to help. It was hard at first. I mean, at first, all we could do was offer an interpreter, hopefully from that person's home country, who could say, these are people you should trust. But then we started getting a lot of media coverage. There were reporters there all the time talking to various members of the legal team. And so word spread pretty quickly that this was a group who was there to do good. If you gave us information, we certainly weren't going to turn it over to the government. We were going to use it to help. Part of that was us also being conscious of who was the face of this group. Certainly no one was ever used as like our token spokesperson. But we were also conscious of the fact that we don't want to look like a bunch of white people who are swooping in to help brown people because that comes across the wrong way too. That comes across as condescending and figuring out how to present our group in a way that represented the diverse group of attorneys and interpreters and volunteers that we were to make sure that that was clear too. One of the amazing things when I was there for a limited amount of time I was there You all were able to get, like, information I didn't know was, like, available. Like, I heard someone saying, hey, there's a flight landing in, like, an hour. Do you have the flight manifest? And I don't know what you all were doing. If you all were cross-referencing names or family members were there and they were giving you information to help you game plan. And then another thing, it was just, like, people screaming across, hey, we need someone that speaks this language. Does anyone here speak this language? All right, no. Does anybody know someone (laughs) that speaks this language? And the third thing... When someone finally came through after all the work you had done and the media was there, you all surrounded that person and protected that person from the media. At first, I was like, what the 
fuck is going on? Like, I don't know if you are pretending you already talked to them and you are, it was, it was like a bubble of like 10 people surrounded that person and you escorted them to their family. You got them out of the media's eye. I still quite don't understand it, but I know you were just trying to keep their situation private. Yeah. And I can actually give a little more detail on that. We obviously didn't have an attorney-client relationship with these people. They didn't, frankly, know we were lawyers, let alone consent to our legal services. But what you can do is create what's sort of an attorney-client privilege shield around someone. And it's like we basically made a physical shield so that if someone asked them a question and they happened to give away personal information that the government could use later, if a reporter got a microphone in there and caught information that you wouldn't want out, that person could then say to us, yep, you're my lawyers now. And now all of a sudden, that information is protected by attorney-client privilege. And so the government can't use it. Not only were we physically protecting these people from being harassed is not the right word, because I think the media was there also for the right reasons. They were there to sort of celebrate the fact that these people were getting through. But I'm sure it felt scary. I'm sure it felt harassing to have all of these microphones and cameras and lights in your face. It was for two reasons. One was actually to physically protect people, but the other was an actual legal reason to make sure that no information was gained from people that could be used for the wrong reasons down the road. Was there any potential of like backlash from the community or the justice system towards you all? You all are kind of putting it on the line, too. You're putting your name on things. The world we live in, everybody doesn't agree with what you're doing. I certainly didn't experience any. I am fortunate enough to work for a very liberal and a very supportive firm that was thrilled we were doing this. They ran it through the ethics committee overnight to make sure that we were clear to be doing this, that there wasn't any reason we couldn't. I have to imagine other people did. A lot of the people who showed up were lawyers in private practice who could take the time from their regular billable commercial litigation work, which is what I spend most of my time on, could take a break to be there. There were certainly people there from the immigration law community, from nonprofits, from the ACLU. I'm, but I'm sure there are people who volunteered who work for more conservative places or, you know, firms that don't like to take a stand on things like this, you never know what clients are going to think. Are clients going to be supportive of this? Are clients going to be upset that you got involved? So um, I didn't experience any backlash, but I have to imagine some people did. The ostensible reason for it was that nationals from these, in the first band was seven majority Muslim countries, presented some sort of terrorist or national security threat to the United States. And it was a full ban. No refugees, no people who already had legal permanent residence or green card status in the U.S., nobody. But they, of course, gave no reasons for why they were making this national security claim. When you looked at it and you said, well, we already have really strict vetting procedures for immigration for immigrants. We specifically have incredibly rigorous standards for refugees. There were time periods for the ban, and that included refugees, but it, it banned refugees from Syria indefinitely. People trying to escape Syria need help maybe more than anybody else, right? And the procedures for vetting refugees go on for a year and a half. It's unbelievably thorough. So to say that the policies we had in place weren't sufficient already and then not give any reasoning for that made no sense. 
When you looked at the past statements that had been made and the campaign promises that had been made and the way this was rolled out, you know, haphazardly slapdash, I can't say it was obvious because it's obvious to me. It's not obvious to everyone. People have differences of opinion, but that the reason for this was discrimination against Muslims. And the fact that they didn't include every Muslim country doesn't mean that it still wasn't targeted at Muslims. The point was to make Muslims feel unwelcome. That was the idea. And it worked. It was also not only Muslim countries, it was significantly poor Muslim countries. In my head, I was thinking, like, I understand what he may be trying to do. Not that I agree with it. But then I said, okay, well, if you're going to do that, why didn't you put Saudi Arabia on the list? That whole strategy just didn't make sense to me. You are literally just singling out these people that there was no indication of a threat. You know, there were time periods for the ban. And so obviously version one was struck down. And rather than appeal, the administration withdrew it. So the first one came out January 27th. The second one came out, I believe, in March. The one change I supported was that they did make an exception for people with green cards, legal permanent residents, which is such an obvious thing to do that I shouldn't have to say congratulations, but that's where the bar is. It's that low. But they took Iraq off the list and said, well, we've talked to them and we've decided that their vetting procedures are now sufficient. There is no chance that in the time between the withdrawal of ban one and the implementation of ban two, that Iraq changed its vetting procedures, that we looked at them, reviewed them, decided they were acceptable. I mean, that was clearly pretext. And so nothing was really different about version two. So then when the administration was surprised about legal challenges, it was sort of shocking because if version one was unconstitutional, of course version two is, it's not different. When you're making that argument, do you bring things up like the stupidity of the decision that removing Iraq and saying that you talk to them makes absolutely no sense? My firm, along with three other organizations, did file a suit challenging ban two. Time-wise, it didn't move as quickly as the cases in Maryland and Hawaii, which is why our case didn't get the press coverage. Not that I wanted it to get more press coverage. That's obviously not what we're in it for. The thought process was as many people as possible should file suit because who knows what the rulings are going to be. Let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So if the case that was filed in Maryland doesn't go and the case that was filed in Washington state doesn't go and the case that was filed in Hawaii doesn't go, maybe ours will. Maybe our judge will be more sympathetic. So let's put the resources there because it's that important. And we put that argument in our briefs. We made that argument at oral argument that, you know, Your Honor, this is clearly pretext. It is a smokescreen. If anything, it makes it more obvious that the purpose of this was to do something hurtful, to do something discriminatory because the rationale that they're giving us just doesn't make sense. It seemed like Iraq was removed for the travel ban was because of the pushback Iraq gave with what was happening over there and the response that people were like, hey, we're trying to transition all of the authority military over to Iraq. This isn't helping. Oh, 100%. And, you know, Iraq called and said, we've been working together on some stuff, including fighting ISIS. So if you want us to continue doing that, take us off the list. And they did, which, again, is just more evidence that if there had been a real national security threat in January, that threat would still exist. It didn't add up. Do you believe that there's a national threat? 
No. From anywhere. You think we're good with the policies we have right now? I think there's a national threat from North Korea. I don't think stopping North Koreans from getting on airplanes and coming into the United States is the answer. If someone somehow gets to flee North Korea, should we stop them because their government is a terrorist regime? No, that's absurd. So do I think that possibly the governments of some of these countries present a threat? Maybe. Do I think that stopping individuals from visiting family members in the U.S. in any way impact that terrorist threat? Given the vetting procedures we already have in place, given the, the foreign and domestic information that we have, no, I don't think it made us in any, I don't think it made us safer. One of the things that I believe the situation with the travel ban and just information in general highlighted is just how much we don't know about how our government works. And I'll bring up two examples. And we talked about one of them, the immigration judges. I don't think people knew that the situation was that dire and that we had such a backlog of situations out there. The second part of that is I don't think people realize how individuals come here illegally and how they live in the shadows illegally. And I learned because I certain experiences I've had, I've friended people that were children of migrant workers. And it's like people that live in shadows, a lot of them pay taxes. They may not pay taxes the legal way, but they have papers. A lot of them pay a lot of taxes, but we don't. Most people who come here illegally do it for the same reason you and I would do it, right? They're doing it because they're trying to make a better life for their family. Getting into this country legally is incredibly difficult. There is no process for someone from Mexico, a migrant farmer, a migrant worker, to just say, excuse me, I'm raising my hand. I'd like to be a U.S. citizen, please. That process doesn't exist. You need to come in with some sort of visa, and then you need to pay exorbitant fees. And often it is folks from Saudi Arabia who are trained doctors who are coming to work at, say, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, and they come in on that sort of work visa. The process to come in is six, $700, and it goes up from there to do all of the citizenship paperwork. I'm not including hiring a lawyer, paying someone to assist you. That's just what the government process costs. So it is, as I talked about before, it's incredibly complicated, and it's cost prohibitive. So we've created a system where it's virtually impossible for someone who just wants a better life to come to this country legally. And if you're not going to make that avenue available, what's left? You're going to get in that truck bed or you're going to swim across the river. When I was in Laredo, Texas, we actually went to one of the security checkpoints to take a tour. And we watched big semis go through and they go through heat detectors. So what looks like a cargo bed of canned goods, you can see the shapes of bodies. You could die just by, hot. it gets too hot. If we're not willing to make a reasonable avenue, we also, the number of worker visas for migrant workers, for farmers that we issue each year is so low. It's something like 10% of the number of people we actually need to come do the work. Well, if you want those people to do the work legally, let them come here legally. If the work is available and they don't have a, a means of, of coming here legally, then they're just going to do it in other ways. We all know people who are here illegally, and, and they are not illegal, 
their status is illegal. People can't be illegal. A lot of them use a false social security number. Some of them are using the same false social security number, and that puts them in a really high tax bracket. And they're trying to do the right thing. And in fact, I, I go back to the Guatemalan family I represented. The mom was using the social security number of someone who had passed away. She was doing it so she could pay into the system because she believed she owed America that. And I said to her, and I don't know if this would still hold true in the Trump administration, it certainly did in the Obama administration, that that fact actually worked in her favor in her asylum application. The fact that you were trying to do the right thing meant something. I was uneducated about stuff. I went to O'Hare, and then when I went, I'm also a person that like read up on the issue. I didn't know the refugee process. We hear it like, oh, we don't want a refugee coming from Syria. I read about it. It's a long, arduous process. Like You just can't come here. you got to have someone saying, I will take you and take care of you for like, I think, three to six months. These are American citizens vouching for you or NGO or something like that. And then you have to you gotta learn the language, and then you got to be able to stand on your own. It's a very difficult process. But we think just because someone on TV says they're going to come here as refugees and take over, it's like, well, it's like a two-year lead time where the State Department is vetting and vetting and vetting and vetting this person. So it's, it's pretty rigorous already, like super rigorous. My book club, the day after the election, decided we were no longer going to be a group of women who met each month to not read a book but drink a lot of wine. We decided we were going to become the quote-unquote book club for justice and that we were going to do something useful with our time. And so what we did was apply with an organization called Refugee One here in Chicago to sponsor a refugee family. And then, of course, because of everything that happened with the travel ban, it took months for us to actually get assigned a family. And we were assigned a family. They made it in actually quite literally 16 hours before the second ban went into effect. I mean, had they been a day later, they would have been turned back. And they came from Burma. Here's a random fact that I just recently learned, becoming more educated. We always hear it called Myanmar or Myanmar. We think of that as sort of the new name for that country, and Burma as sort of the one that's we no longer use. People are actually fleeing because the Myanmar, Myanmar government is an oppressive terrorist regime. So Burma is actually the sort of politically correct term. And it's mostly Muslims that are fleeing there, right? Our family is actually a Christian family. They had been living in a refugee camp in Thailand for 10 years. So they arrived. They do have some family here, but they got here. They spoke not one word of English. The mom is not literate in her own language, let alone another one. They came with two duffel bags for a family of six. Those were their only belongings. All they wanted was to get here, to get dad a job, to get their kids in school, and to set up a life. The terror that they went through figuring out how to do this, living in an apartment in a city, and what that entailed when they had been living in what amounted to a low security level prison in a tropical climate. I mean, they weren't allowed to leave the refugee camp. This has been going on for 10 years. This slow genocide, one of the leaders of Burma, Myanmar, has won the Nobel Peace Prize. And has mostly remained silent on this. And then we have objections for letting people like that into our great nation, which one of our many symbols says we will take, you know, your weak, your poor. Your huddled masses. Right. That was the whole idea. I think we need to truly understand 
all the implications and how all these things work. And part of it is educating the public. And it is just so unbelievably complicated trying to educate folks about I'm not an immigration lawyer. I'm still learning more about this every day. This is a whole specialty people devote their entire careers to. I believe there are a lot of battles out there. Like you mentioned Burma. That is a prime example. They were fighting one battle and this whole other thing that was going on, this atrocity was going on, and we didn't even know about. We didn't care to research or learn about it until recently, but they've been living in that type of environment for 10 years. I feel the same about Syria. I personally was ignorant about the horrible things that have been going on in Syria until two years ago, three years ago, and I just wasn't aware. And that's horrifying. How do you get the message out? So I'll bring it back to like the, the travel ban. So where where is that now? Ban 2 made its way up to the Supreme Court. Over the summer, the Supreme Court said, okay, the ban can stay in place temporarily. We are going to stay the injunctions that are in place, which means the lower courts stopped the travel ban. We are going to unstop the travel ban temporarily with the exception that if you have this a bona fide relationship with a person or an entity in the U.S., you can come in. So if you have a sibling, a spouse, a parent, and I think they've extended it to grandparent, cousin, you can come in. And if you are a refugee with you know a connection to an organization that's here to sponsor you, you can come in. Version 3 came out and... They added two non-Muslim countries, and this was so odd. It's North Korea and Venezuela. Travel from North Korea is already highly restricted, so okay. I know for a fact Venezuela, but the provisions of the travel ban basically only applied to government officials. So again, it applied to the, you know, 10 people. Nothing really changed. And once again, they had the chance to come out with findings, reasoned findings, for why there is a national security threat from these countries. And once again, the suits in Maryland and Hawaii went forward. The case in Hawaii has already made it to the Ninth Circuit, which ruled December 22nd, I believe. And this time, they said they didn't find that it was a religious discrimination issue. They found that it was a national origin discrimination issue. They're clearly not saying this is no longer a religious issue. They're just sort of giving the Supreme Court more reasons to strike it down. Under the immigration statute, you can't just ban entry for nationals from a whole country without legitimate reasoned findings is the term. They didn't have that. And so they said, this is now just discrimination against people from these particular countries. Fine. We'll take religion out of it now. It's This is just national origin discrimination. They have, again, overturned it, but recognizing that they can't undo the Supreme Court's ruling until the Supreme Court hears the appeal from their ruling. So the Maryland case did the same thing. It is now going to get argued at the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, Virginia. That's more of a toss-up because the Ninth Circuit is known for being stacked with a bunch of liberal judges. They're not all, but many. The Fourth Circuit is more conservative, and so it's unclear what judges will be on the panel. But to be clear, like the circuit on the West Coast, it's not just like the same three judges. It's like 30 or 25. Oh, it's even more than that. But it also has conservative judges on it. Of course, yeah, of course, quite a few. And it's a random draw. And so it happens, there are more liberal judges on that circuit than not, but it's still a random panel. We're sort of waiting for the Fourth Circuit to rule, and then the Supreme Court will hear all of this again. The ruling that they issued this summer is a temporary ruling, and that, I think, didn't get a lot of press coverage, that people think, oh, the travel ban is just allowed to go into effect. It is temporarily. 
I don't really know how to predict how they will come out. We don't know enough about Neil Gorsuch and, and what he thinks about all of this yet. It's hard to say how the court's going to shake out on this. In the perfect world for you, how would you like all these appeals and the, the cases? And How would you like it to play out? In a perfect world, I think what I want is for the Supreme Court to say, this was issued as a result of religious discrimination, as a result of national origin discrimination, and so we're overturning it. I do think you have to keep it somewhat narrow, and that might not be a popular opinion. You don't want to say the president going forward for eternity never has the power to issue a ban on travel from specific countries. It's not what the law says. It's not a good idea for national security reasons, because at some point there may be a legitimate national security threat. Who knows? And also the way we have designed it is that the president does have significant power to dictate immigration policy. That's the system that we have designed, and I don't think it's the court's place to overturn that generally. The government's argument is that the court doesn't actually have the power to review the president's decision here. I don't agree with that at all. There's a statute. The court has the power to see whether the the president is acting in accordance with the statute, in accordance with the Constitution. The administration's stance says the president has wide authority to do this. If that's the case, what's the argument against DACA? The Trump administration is not saying that Obama did not have authority to sign the executive order authorizing DACA. They're saying he was fully within his rights as a president to do that. But Donald Trump is fully within his rights as a president to undo it. That's their position. It's an argument against the use of executive orders. Every president has issued more executive orders than the president before him. It's an uphill battle fighting his DACA repeal because DACA was put through as an executive order because Congress couldn't get legislation through. I mean, the argument is sort of how he's doing it, which is throwing 800,000 lives into chaos. Why would you do this to these people who came here as children, none of whom have presented any sort of threat to anyone? That's sort of the executive order argument on both sides, that it was okay for Obama to do it, but it's okay for Trump to undo it. People with illegal immigrant status break our laws at a lower rate than our own citizens. Without question. On, On average. If I speed and I get pulled over, the worst that's going to happen is that I get a speeding ticket. The worst that happens for a dreamer is that she gets deported. The consequences are so dire. I think you're doing big things locally, which I love because I love Chicago and I love when people put their name on the line and they put all this energy into helping other people. There are people that defend our country from itself. And you're one of those people. Well, thank you. (laughs) So very nice of you to say. I hate that the work is there, right? I hate that that this ever happened. But I love that I have skills that I can use to fight. Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah. Intro, mixing, editing is done by Alyssa Moxley. Produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls, and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, our handle is at deeperdishshy. Our website is www. 
deeperdishshy.com.